ready to overdo rentals where we talk about those films that we think never got their fair shake and some great ones that we think need some light shown on them again. I'm Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Mike Reyes. And today we're going to be joined by Clayne Crawford for his new film, The Killing of Two Lovers, as well as the 2010 indie, The Perfect Host, which also stars David Hyde Pierce. Now, to sort of run down both of these films, uh, The Killing of Two Lovers is about a man named David, played by Clayne Crawford, who is going through a separation, and his wife is dating another gentleman, and we get to see the mental and sort of physical toll on him that this uh, event takes on him, uh, as it would with anyone. Uh, And then in the case of The Perfect Toast, uh, we see Clayne Crawford as fugitive John Taylor, who after a successful bank, but uh, high stakes bank robbery, stumbles into the home of the perfect host played by David Hyde Pierce. And the less said about that one, the better. Um, yeah, and um, The Killing of Two Lovers is available in select theaters and on demand this Friday, May 14th. And uh, the perfect host, I think was something from what we discussed, we've both seen pretty early in our, our careers as entertainment journalists, I actually, I remember correctly, it's one of, not the first, but it's definitely in the first batch of, of press screenings I ever went to. Uh, that was, it was earlier for me because I was still an amateur at this point, writing for a site called Cocktails and Movies. And I had stumbled upon the movie on Netflix. And I basically wrote a, a take home, I used to call it take home theater, which yeah. was a, 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 basically a column where there would be something on streaming. And it's like, hey, you should watch this. It's on streaming. You don't have to, you know, get too complicated with it. And The Perfect Host still remains that sort of movie to this day because it's right now on Amazon Prime with subscription as well as on Tubi and I think Pluto, which if you are in the interest, if, if you're interested in free streaming, Tubi and Pluto have amazing libraries. Yeah, you they do. Have to sit through some ads, but they're not that bad. But in the meantime, if you want to reach out to us on social media, wait, no, not if, because you know what? you should reach out to us on social media because this is a fun show. We like to hear from our fans. So when you want to reach out to us on social media, hit us on Twitter at Rentals Overdue, on Facebook at Overdue Rentals, on Instagram at Overdue Rentals Show. And if you have those overdue rentals that you just want to hear us cover, and I know you do, email us at overduerentals at gmail.com. And with that, I think it's time to get Mr. Crawford in. Clayne Crawford, come on down. You're the next guest on Overdue Rental. Matthew and Mike, how are you guys? Clayne, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Yes, I want welcome, welcome, welcome to Overdue Rentals. It's fantastic to have you here. And this is also, I got to say, I almost feel I almost feel bad when I say it to people because I feel like I'm, it's like a backhanded compliment, but it's not in any way whatsoever. The best work I've ever seen you do is fantastic. Oh, no, buddy. I mean, it is the best work that I've ever done. There's no doubt, you know, it, it, that, that, that goes with um, the safety. Uh, you know, I, 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 someone complimented Philip Seymour Hoffman. They said that guy's willing to do on camera what most people will only do in a bathroom behind a locked door. <laughs> um, and that's because you're in a safe environment, right? You got your bubble. Robert provided that on that set. Uh, it was so intimate and so quiet. You know, Robert doesn't even say action. He uh, he just kind of whispers whenever you're ready. Mm. You know, that's that's his that's kind of his his uh, his go. And uh, as a result, all those little things just put you in a place of 
not only being comfortable, but it just that the that comfortableness kind of fuels confidence. Well, you know, is this the kind of project also too that you see the script and say, I, you know, because you're an executive producer on this as well. Was it always the plan to do both, or was that one way to help it get made, knowing that it was going to be made the way you wanted to, Robert to see it? Definitely quality control is a reason why I, I jumped into the producing aspect. And and also I got kind of backed into a corner, you know. I mean. I, the way my last job ended, um, I felt like, you know, my old man, he, he, he always kind of says, you know, um, your actions speak so loud, it doesn't matter what you say, you know, and for me, I was in a place of I kind of wanted to fight back and kind of wanted to defend myself and, and get on social media and, 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 and then I, I was like, war, got to do what my dad says, and um, just kind of go do it, you know, and, and, and so I, I was like, let's just go make a movie and let's make it the way we want to make it. Um, and yeah, I, I, I'm grateful for that experience because it kind of pushed me into a corner to where I finally did the thing that I was always scared to go do. Risk my own money to go tell a story when I'm always kind of just piggybacking on others, you know, and, and, and waiting for them to hire me, for them to do all the work and then complaining when it doesn't go the way that I don't like it, right? Or the film doesn't turn out the way that I... I'd hope. Uh, so it was definitely a natural progression, and 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 it was more to because I had so much faith in Robert as a filmmaker because of the films I had seen him make with his children. You know, not like he's working with you know super famous actors or just professional actors for crying out loud. He's working with his dad and his kids, and he was turning out such great product. I was confident that uh, I needed to a support him and financially, but also give him the support, which was trusting that he was going to come out with a great product without micromanaging him. So as, as challenging as it was not to have like the financial support from a studio or a producer, it was so, it was so freeing um, to kind of tell the story that we wanted to tell. And that's really important with this sort of movie because it's this sort of dying breed of adult dramas that, you know, you look at a title like The Killing of Two Lovers, and you're expecting more histrionics, you're expecting some bigger things where this is a very quiet film to the point where a lot of the scenes that you're framed in, there's a lot of empty space sort of helping convey the mindset of this character. And yeah. you could just imagine like maybe the 20 or $50 million version of it, it's like, it's always on you, always sort of at an angle and you're just pulling a face. Yeah, you know, I, I think, I agree with you. I think it's a dying breed. Um, it, it's funny to be a filmmaker right now because I think that for so long there was a formula that worked for primetime and then kind of cable came out and then obviously with feature and then we were able to categorize feature, what's funny, what's drama, what's action. And, and now we've been so exposed to such a large amount of content that we're such sophisticated viewers um, and the way we receive media continues to change daily that none of us really even know where the heck it's heading. But what we do know is that we're, we love great characters. And if it's a great character, we will follow their journey, right? And what's interesting about Robert's scripts that I'd read over the past 10 years, because we've been trying to do this since 09, hmm. uh, make a film together is I would read his scripts and I would just be blown away that I'm like, man, this is so clean and simple. 
but yet these characters are not. And, and for me, I feel if I want something that's going to be extremely complicated, like if I want to watch seven, I like seven that was made today, it'd be a 10 part series. Right. And we would really be able to flush everything out. Um, so for a feature in 2020, I felt like it had to be just concise. Um, and, and for me, we didn't need to know why they broke up. None of that matters. It's where are they now? And we find these individuals and we're going to go on a journey with them. And to me, that's great storytelling. Um, and and, and I, I, I hope that these types of stories are going to make a resurgence because, you know, being there and, and Harold and Maude, you know, these are some of my favorite films. And you're right. You just don't see them anymore. Right, Matt? I mean, you just don't see it. Well, being, you just have to say being there because that's one of my like all time. That's like an overdue rental to me. That's something that yes, for pop, and even for the kind of the reception it got when it came out, like the fact that people don't know about it freaks me out. It freaks me out. I mean, Peter Sellers in that film. I don't think anyone has ever done nothing. Well, yeah. maybe Ryan Gosling and Drive, but I, it's hard to do nothing that beautiful. And I mean, Peter Sellers just, mwah. and that kind of story, it's just we're living this little journey, this section that we don't know what the hell happened before. We don't know what the hell's going to happen next. And it doesn't matter because we're just wanting to escape and it doesn't always have to involve tights and a cape, right? Yeah. Well, you, to go back though to what you were saying, while we don't need to know everything that happened between David and his wife in the film, did you create your own backstory for it? Because there are allusions to a moment of him, quote unquote, blowing up per, per se. Did you kind of go back into that and work with that also with Sepeda as well? No, I, I don't know if, you know, for me, it was more um, the, the, the visual storytelling for me, which was making sure that the moment you met David, you realize that maybe he's let himself go a little bit, right? Um, he's kind of, it's, it's, he's all about the children. and and. Is, as it relates to the backstory as to the why, you know, I don't know if you guys are married, um, but sometimes it's the littlest thing that all of a sudden, I mean, the whole fucking world's going to blow up, right? Um, oh, yeah. It's, right? It's like, uh, <laughs> I didn't put the fork in the right. I, I don't know what that, sometimes I don't know what the hell I did. But uh, uh, it's rarely that it's this, it's this insulting kind of, I, I disrespected my wife in some way. So I kind of felt that it was more, you know, the original script was a, was a short and it was called The Drift. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I thought that was such a great description of kind of what happens in a marriage when there's children. And especially as the kids get older, their needs and wants kind of trump ours, you know? And, and there was a great, uh, book I was reading uh, and, and to, when a marriage begins to fall apart is when the only thing you're discussing are the children. Um, and, and for me, I saw it as, you know, Nikki's going to work. She meets the guy that's got the brand new truck. You know, he's got a gym membership. He doesn't have four kids that he's having to worry about. So he's able to keep that goatee clean, got that haircut every two weeks, you know, and that's attractive. I think that's what happens in a lot of marriages is that we get, it's like family. You're so in love and we're so connected. You kind of let yourself kind of go 
you don't you don't put a lot of thought into everything that you're saying. You kind of feel like there's a, a shorthand. So was I? Did I need a real reason? I, I it was why I cast I cast or why we cast Chris was Chris Coy walks up and he's just got this mm-hmm. this way about him, this walk and the way he's a, he's in such great shape and he has this confidence that's attractive. And, and I felt it was more about me creating David to be a little homely, um, you know, and, 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 and so I didn't, it, it didn't need to be a big reason as to that this, this life altering event happened. It was just more that there was a bit of a drift. And, um, and when you're at work every day and you're around these men and she's got a dude who's, you know, going to clean up barbed wire at Mrs. Staples house, you know, that's not as sexy. No. And what's really interesting now that you mentioned the contrast of the characters is they both have Ford trucks, but you look at David's and it's that red sort of beat up more classic model. And then the other guy's got like that big F-150 that looks straight out of the commercial. That's right. It's it's what I like to call the extension. (laughs) Folks, we're going to leave that to your imagination. That's right. Now the Ford... The Ford thing is funny. Uh, that happened accidentally. You know, we shot, I don't know if you guys know this, but we shot this film in 12 days for $32,000. So resources were limited. And we shot in this little tiny town of Kanash, Utah, which shout out to Kanash. Uh, those people were so wonderful and giving to us and welcoming. <clears throat> um, but, you know, it was really one of those things. It's like, oh, shit. We need a truck tomorrow for the for the house for the guy. And my buddy's like, I'll find one. I'll be right back. Right. And then here comes this big, beautiful truck that kind of pulled in. So a lot of those things, you know, in the truck I drove was Robert McCohen's truck, um, the director. That's his everyday uh, pickup, which is kind of like mine. I drive old Fords as well. Um, so I, 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 I felt like all that was interesting. That was part of it, too. And that his clothes were tailored, that he had the jacket that came at the hips and the skinny jeans and the new boots and the belt and like all the, and David's got like a weird hoodie and overalls and like some other shirt coming out of it, you know, which are like all my own private clothes that I work on my own farm. Um, and again, I kind of thought that was all crucial to kind of building to where the audience didn't ever ask why. They could see, okay, Nikki's beautiful and this guy's pretty good looking as well. And Maybe David's kind of slacking a little bit, you know, so we can see why there's a little bit of a separation. But in the same breath, I'm still watching it saying to myself, you know, David does have personality. He obviously cares about his kids and his family. He wants to make things work out where normally in these types of films, you get the opposite almost. Oh, yeah. Well, we definitely, and I agree, Matt, you know, we definitely didn't want to play into stereotypes. Um, You know, I think that was, you know, I learned working with Ray McKinnon on rectify that you know we tend to want to put the black hat on this guy and the white hat on this guy so that we have clear understanding of who's who but we're all quite capable of beautiful and horrific things depending on the circumstances that we find ourselves in and just how far we've been pushed and and I, I think that's why for me understanding David was you know that line when he's sitting with Nikki in the car on date night and he goes you know I wish I could have had the children mm. and that hit home in such a way that this guy, he, he, he wanted to be a stay-at-home dad, really, you know, and, and 
that's quite progressive from in, in the middle of the country. It, we see it more and more in the larger cities, you know, uh, but there's still these kind of traditional structures that thankfully we're breaking the mold so that women do not feel that they have to follow a certain thing and men do not have to feel like they have to follow this, this idea of masculinity that just doesn't hold merit any longer, you know? And, and I think that's why it was so crucial for some of the scenes in the film that when violence is the answer, it just seems so nasty and mm -hmm. so ugly when I've made a career off of shooting people and killing, beating people up. And, and I don't even look back at the body count, you know, I'm just, just taking them out and there's no remorse and, or feeling to what they've lost and the families of their loss and so forth. So all those things were crucial for us to kind of tackle throughout this process. Well, that's what also makes this movie so valuable because it's a contemporary take on something that we've seen done time and again in a film. And I'm glad that you brought up the date night scene because I have that's probably my favorite part of the whole movie is oh. just watching this couple sort of in real time dissect things in their own terms. And then the slight complication comes up where, you know, the boyfriend comes in with the flowers. And then it's not one of those things where I first thought, oh, did she double book date night? And this is going to kind of be like <laughs> our, our sort of sympathy plea for him but it's like no it really was an accident life just happened and it, that's probably the two words that sum this movie up best life happens it, life happens uh, without a doubt and 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 i love so much in that scene too that that's where david learns that she just got raped right so what we realize is just how great the divide really is between these two you know you realize that she's sharing information with him that she's not she's not sharing with David. Uh, that 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 was that was um, that was very telling as well. It's also like again what Mike was talking about earlier, having all these very wide shots to see that divide. You know, not because only it's just the fact that you're inside a truck, but we're now really close to them visually and seeing how close and deep this is. Yeah, that that three by that three by four was so such an interesting choice that Robert suggested because. A, it's claustrophobic, but two, you know, for instance, when you're in the truck with David, you can't see what's in front of him or what's behind him, and I don't think he can either, mm. and, and part of that, you know, and Robert had a great description for kind of the setting of Panache, you know, it's, it, you, you can see a marriage from a distance, and it looks like this beautiful, majestic thing, but when you really get inside of it, it's quite complicated. And that was the, the reason behind some of those big, beautiful, vast shots of those mountain ranges, which is just breathtaking. But right down there in the center of it, though, some pretty complicated stuff going on. Yeah. And then that also goes for that one sort of heartbreaking scene at the end where they're all firing off the rockets. And then, mm. you know, the eldest daughter's doesn't work. And it was it was all going so well up until that one point. And then it just kind of breaks down again and that's where we get the real close-ups well that's it and it's so telling isn't it these poor dads you know and and I, I i'm sure there's mothers that are forced to have to do this as well but um traditionally you kind of see the fathers trying to fit in the all this time in a weekend and it's you know Robert and I, we have these different stories of, of watching friends and family in our lives who are going through these sad separations. And 
the father's desperately trying to make this weekend uh, mean something. Um, and, and, and to see David out there with his kids and he's got these rockets and he thinks that he has, he's got it all figured out. And, um, it, it was so telling, you know, we only had two takes to shoot that. Um, we had such limited time on this film and our golf cart stopped working. Uh, that was our dolly. So we had to kind of get the, we had to bring the van onto the baseball field to try to get the van to move in and out for us as Robert's kind of hanging out the back of this thing. And, um, you know, the kids were so wonderful how they would get involved. You know, if I started doing that countdown, you watch the kids and they're just bouncing up and down and they've got that foot stomping and counting it out. And, you know, they desperately want this to work and, uh, they want to see, they want to spend fun times with their dad and their mom. And, and, and I thought that's why the ending of this film was so important. Uh, uh. But yeah, it, the the weekend warrior father is uh, is probably my greatest nightmare, not being able to wake up with my kids and and eat breakfast or watch cartoons and go for a walk in the afternoon after dinner, like the little things to try to make it an event every other weekend. That'd be challenging, buddy. You had you had you mentioned the golf cart was your dolly, and I, again you mentioned the budget. And I read about the budget. And I'm wondering now because when I remember watching the film, the very first not the very first shot, but as it's following you jogging. And then, so it's, it's very jagged and it's kind of as if somebody's running with you, but it immediately stops like on a dime and then just has this amazing still shot. And I thought it was just a steady cam. And I'm wondering if you even had something like that on set. Like what kind of different devices did you have available to you for this? You know, Matt, we didn't have anything. Um, we didn't even have playback or a monitor. Mm. Um, so we had to trust what we were getting old school, you know, um, and no, it was no steady cam. I, we that was our that was our our golf cart that day. Um, wow! And um, you know, it it stops on a dime. Uh, it just as kind of the date night scene you're referring to, uh, uh, Mike, is that it's a lot of the rehearsal that went into those 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 scenes, so that it looked like Robert was just capturing a piece of life. Um, so because Kanash was such a tiny little town, uh, I think one mile from one end to the next, maybe less, um, we were able to kind of walk to all the locations daily and, and rehearse within the scene. So Seppi and I would get in the truck, you know, after lunch or in the mornings, and we would just do that drive so that we could time out the silence to meet, how's your dad doing for me to kind of, so that by the time I put it in park, you know, she asked me, are you thinking about finding your own place? Um, and we needed the record to literally kind of skip at that moment and we needed to be completely still. Um, so yeah, the shot that you're referring to, we kind of timed that out. And you know, Robert's a photography professor. I don't know if you're aware of that at BYU. So composition is very important to him. And, and he kind of described this film to me, knowing we could not shoot coverage, knowing that we were not gonna have the resources or time that each frame had to almost live like a, uh, a living photograph. There's also that really beautiful musical score that goes with this movie where part of it is actual music and then part of it is, you know, the click of a gun or, you know, the moan of the wind. Like it, it just, the sound composition on this complements the image so wonderfully. Uh, what was it like actually getting to watch this for the first time put together? You know, 
when Peter sent us, Peter Albrecht and our sound designer um, from Copenhagen, um, you know, Robert had been discussing that approach and kind of <clears throat> wanting to use his environment to try to inform, you know, what he was going through. And if you think about it, David kind of lives in his truck um, because he's, he's at home with his father. So his kind of his only private time is in that vehicle. And, and I think we counted like 76 door slams of the truck in the entire film. So we thought, David hears that pretty often, you know, and, um, and then kind of the, it is almost sound like the creaking of a ship, like boards kind of being stressed to the, to, to, to the greatest. And, um, we felt that a, a uh, to answer your question was very exciting. Um, I'd never heard a sound design like that in my life. Uh, and, and what it, how it elevated the piece, um, really, really kind of got us in the place where we knew, cause you know, what's exciting with Peter is Peter doesn't just get it to where you want it. Peter brings it to where you want it. And then we build on it. And that's why he's such a special sound designer. You know, it's, it's kind of incredible because, you know, we're also here, we want to talk to you about a movie that we think needs more uh, press than it got, you know, in his day, which is the perfect host. And that also is, I mean, yes, it's not $32,000, but that was a micro budget film as well. And it's amazing that just in a 10 year span or 10, 11 year span, we're seeing a film like the Killing of Two Lovers that could be done and have such beautiful visuals, whether it was done by somebody who's a photography professor or not. And The Perfect Host Wall, which is a great movie, maybe shows a little bit more of its timeliness and being the production value seems like it didn't match almost. Is it kind of incredible being able to kind of see that divide also in, in filmmaking? It's interesting, isn't it? The, um, the evolution. You know, I, um, I've always felt that, I mean, I remember when I watched Blair Witch Project at Sundance, mm. it blew me away. And I, I, you know, I realized quite early on um, that as long as what's happening, and our kids are learning it now because they're watching, you know, they're just watching kids on YouTube and they're just watching people truly live and interact, you know, whether it's opening gifts or my boy was watching some girl sitting in a box the other day that was getting mailed to her grandma, eating like goldfish in the thing. And, he, and I'm like, what the hell are you doing? He's like, ah, she's watching this box. I'm just, man, mom. I mean, <laughs> it, for me, and, and as a result, I, I went and showed them Once Upon a Time in the West. Mm. And I just wanted to gauge where these kids, they were, you could have heard a pin drop watching that fly crawl around on his face. And my kids watched the entire film. And my youngest, who's eight, a ghost story is his favorite movie right now. Mm. So it's really exciting, I think, where we're headed. And I think that we're moving to more of an observational. I mean, granted, we're going to have the big universal ride that is uh, Marvel films. And, and, and I enjoy them as much as anybody does. I love taking my kids and we all get a bunch of popcorn and candy and it's a three hour whatever. You know, explosion. Um, but I think also there's we're, we're more interested in just watching human beings kind of represent what we deal with on a daily basis. And, and I think for us telling this type of story, rarely do you see divorce in such an honest light or separation. You know, a marriage story, driver, his attorney says it's gonna be 25 grand and he pulls out his checkbook. 
I don't know anyone in my town where I grew up can pull out their checkbook and write 25,000. They can't go sell their truck and make $25,000, right? I mean, we, Robert and I, when we were going to make this film, uh, kind of the inspiration, some of these stories um, was this family in Nebraska who are doing well now, but they had tried to divorce and couldn't afford to. They said, we can't afford two households. We can't afford to have two separate meals every day. For We just, we have to struggle and we have to figure this out together. You know, and my grandfather who, my grandma and grandpa who were married for 72 years said the same thing. He said, look, man, you guys have your food delivered on your doorstep. He's like, we, we were hungry. And he goes, it was truly about survival. And it was just easier to do it with a partner. So you made things work. He goes, you guys are spoiled, man. He goes, this, he goes, don't think it was some great love story for 72 years. He goes, just, we were making it work. It was a conscious effort on a daily basis. And, and I think that's very interesting. You know, I think, uh, I, I wonder how, how, how long marriages will really last in the future, right? Because what do we really need another person for? Our phone can take us to great food, can tell us how to get anywhere we want. You know, we can figure everything out. We're not reliant on these relationships that we once were, whether it's our parents to give us knowledge or experience or our partner to kind of help guide, navigate the world. Yeah, it's amazing what apps and social media will do for you these days. And uh, to your credit, mentioning YouTube, kids probably could, you, you watch Blair Witch Project now and it's like, oh, that's, you know, that's cute but because kids are so used to watching other people with like 4K phones filming, sitting in a box, eating goldfish versus you had these film students out with cameras in the middle of the woods. And that was like cutting edge for, for indie filmmaking. But right. I like the, I love the fact that your kids loved Once Upon a Time in the West because it, it shows that that sort of storytelling still, there's still very much a market for that. It's just a question of how to tap into it. I think more so. I really do. I just think it's more so. I think even the even the cartoons, a lot of the cartoons that my younger kids are watching don't even have dialogue. They're emotion, right? These kids, these these things are making sounds and they're they're experiencing and and I, I honestly I don't even know if my kids watch many cartoons. They have so many things that they're watching that I'll sit down with them. And again, it's just watching these individuals kind of navigate certain situations um with humor and 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 what have you so i i i think it's I, i'm hoping there's going to be a resurgence uh and and just with the amount of outlets and the amount of content you know i mean we're all so overwhelmed i think sometimes you just want to watch a simple story with people that you can relate to and then there's simple stories though and then there are the technically simple stories that do have more behind them. Again, like The Perfect Host, a film where is in essence two people, but not two people at the same time sharing all their scenes together. You know, like I, that's like something to me where like I think, I'm sitting there thinking of like, well, he's sitting on set and he's got to pretend that there are people there and that's generally acting, but then he's got to believe it and know they're not there. Like, how does that mindset come about as far as preparing? I don't know, Matt. I'm not really a, um, <clears throat> I'm not a trained, like traditionally trained actor. You know, I, I, I moved to LA when I was like 17 and I just kind of jumped in and started figuring it out. And I didn't come from a family that could kind of uh, supply financial support um, to where I could be specific about the roles that I chose. So I just had to kind of survive. So for me, you know, 
CBS was kind of like me sacking groceries for a long time. I was just doing every single crime drama there was to try to make a living so that I could kind of sustain myself. And then just utilize the opportunities to, to grow. Uh, so I, I learned how to act on set. So what do I do to pretend people aren't there? I just pretend people aren't there. I, <laughs> I wish I could have this really deep, beautiful kind of explanation as to what it is. But for me, it's like I told my wife, I was trying to put myself on tape for this thing I'm, I, that I thought was written really well. And, um, and I just said, I don't even know how to audition because for me as an actor, it's the clothes, it's the environment, it's um, the other actor in front of me and kind of immersing myself into that world of make-believe. Um, and and, and I, I don't, you know, it's, it's quite challenging uh, to act, which is why I was so grateful for something like this film, because yes, it was challenging to have 12 days, but I was able just to completely stay covered the entire time and I never came up for breath until it was all over. Um, and staying in it like that, I feel is where you get the best. I mean, look, there's some guys that are super trained that they do things that are just mind blowing to me. And then they're at craft services telling jokes, eating Twizzlers. Um, I, I wish I could do that. It would be much easier on my family. Um, but, you know, for something like The Perfect Host, I had a great actor in David, man, uh, David Hyde Pierce is one of the most giving, loving actors that I've ever worked with. And he approaches it with such integrity and class. And he's prepared in, in a way that um, it made it fun every day. And uh, it, it's rare that you get to work with those kind of guys. And, and I had that on The Killing of Two Lovers. Um, Chris and Seppi showed up and they knew there were no trailers. They knew there was nowhere to go, that we were just in it. We were in the snow and we were going to sit there and we waited our turn. And if we weren't waiting, we were rehearsing. And I think that's why the film plays as well as it does, because we just all emerge ourselves. That's something I like to call madman energy, because it's just like you've got those projects where the cast, the crew, everybody just knows what they showed up for. And it's not just you go with the set list and everybody waits at craft services. It's no, okay, there's 12 days, five shots today. If you're not doing this, you're doing X. And just especially with, with both of these films, that sort of energy shows. And both of these characters are very atypical of what you would expect for them because John and the Perfect Host, you were first introduced to him and you mentioned your background in, in crime dramas like CSI and what have you. You're expecting this guy to be, you know, very hard boiled. Oh, oh, he's, he, he's gonna get what's coming to him, sure. And then we learn slowly, just like we do with your character in The Killing of Two Lovers, there's more to the story. It's very much a case of you cannot judge the book. And then that's what makes the ride all the more interesting. Well, that's it, isn't it, Mike? I mean, you, we, we, we're all so layered. And, and it's kind of, I was going back to the, to the black hat, white hat, you know, you know, at some point that guy who's got 30 people body count, you know, who's on death row, there was a time when a box full of kittens was just the most beautiful thing in the world to him. You know, there's these things, things shift in us. And, and as I said before, I think that's why, you know, Lord of the Flies was my favorite book growing up because we're all capable of such violence and yet such beauty. Um, and that's what mesmerizes me about human beings. And then especially anyone who's willing to explore 
those different levels of, 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 of humans. And, and the perfect host was a great example. And, and it's crazy that we're having a conversation about this film. I don't think I've ever heard any, I've never talked this much about that movie. Um, it kind of came and went, you know, um, but I thought Nick Tomei, the director, it's such an interesting approach. It almost felt like we were doing a play. And, That's and, exactly and, my thought, yeah. And, it, and, and, as, and it's, it's challenging for films to have that kind of feel um, to where you feel like it's happening in real time. Um, and we certainly wanted that with The Killing of Two Lovers, which, it, which is why it was so important to kind of have those silent moments. Um, you know, it's, 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 for me, it's always the moments in between what's not being said. It, it really was. That's, that's how, I, how I always thought about it, specifically about the scenes just between you and David, that it was like, this is a, this is a play. We're just watching it in a, different, in a different medium. But in the same breath, it is based on, on a short film that Nick already made. So talking about that idea of not necessarily training the way you would normally do if you were a professional, um, if you got all the schooling, mm -hmm. did you go back and watch that and base anything off of that too? He's like, no, this is mine. I'm just going to do what I want to do. Did I go back and watch the the short? Yeah, and build anything off? No, 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 no. You know, um, like the greatest example of that was like with Lethal. You know, I was so terrified, mm. which is why I didn't want to go do the job initially. Was I didn't want to, um, you know, you don't want to mimic anything. And and for me, it's tough. All I have is my own instrument. And I can only blow the air I have through it. And I think if I try to pull from anything else, um, it's going to read false. So for me, I have to, you know, um, it's almost kind of, um, you know, what, what was that Kevin Costner film? Uh, when we played the baseball player, he's like, clear the mechanism, you know. Uh, you can't, uh, uh, it wasn't Boulder. It was uh, Boulder. Well, for the game. Boulder Drum's amazing, though. Um, so for me, it's kind of clearing the mechanism and just getting into a place to where I can, I can let whatever it is pass through me. Um, you know, I, I honestly, the best work that I've done is because I have had very little time to think. And I think that's why The Killing of Two Lovers played as well as it did is because I was so busy every day just trying to make sure the logistics of it worked from a producer standpoint, um, that when it was time to act, I had my five minutes to pray to the acting gods to allow me to be an open vessel for the, the truth to pass through me. And then I just had to try to be as present as humanly possible. And for me, that's where the best work comes from. Uh, I, I, I think I'm the painter that uh, I'll have six layers on the canvas, you know, and then I still want to start over. Um, so it's hard for me to watch performances and, and certainly it would be extremely difficult to overcome if I, if I, if, if I had seen someone, I mean, thank God I had not watched Lethal Weapon for 15 years uh, because there's no way I would have, I would have tried to 100% emulate what he was doing. And then that's that's an even a luxury you don't have even more so on a short shoot like that because then you have to take that time to overcome that sort of anxiety and that's just something that needs to be out the window when you're shooting like 12 17 days that's right you have to come in free 
and you can't be playing, you can't play with ideas. So for me as a performer, what I do is I read the script, you know, 15 to 20 times. And then, so I have a clear understanding of the story we're trying to tell because, you know, you never want to try to, you never want to be bigger than the story, right? I'm simply a color on the canvas and, and I need to make sure that I'm the best blue or the best, uh, you know, orange that I can be. Um, and, and what goes into that for me is again, why do I look is so important because it's why do I look this way? What has resulted in that I put my clothes on or I've chosen these items or I have or have not had a haircut? All those things inform my behavior and my past. And then just having a clear understanding of the dialogue so that there is no improv. I'm not trying to, I'm not a writer, so I don't want to try to be one in the moment. I want to make sure that I am focused on the story that I'm there to tell, and then certainly be open to anything that may shift or change throughout that process. Um, but I, I would say for me, it's it's just kind of the boring preparation of, of, of knowing what I am in this story and, and having a clear understanding of, of, again, my cues as it were, so that I'm never stumping anyone else and then I think if you get all of that out of the way and then we work on the blocking and I really have a clear understanding of what I'm saying when I grab this mug and why I'm saying it when I put it up here and mm -hmm. let those actions inform, uh, let that, that action kind of in, inform my behavior, um, then you can let all the exciting things kind of happen in the moment as it were, right? The, the natural things that you can't prepare for. Uh, the Hitchcock said, just make sure the camera's pointing at it. Um, so that, that's kind of been my approach with, with film and television and, and the same with when I was doing The Perfect Host, you know, I would run to work every day. I lived two miles from the set. It was perfect. I was in Echo Park and we shot in Silver Lake and I would run to work every day um, because I felt like he was always running and just that little thing of getting his blood flowing he moved a little differently, right? And he, he was, he, his receptors were firing on different cylinders and, and just something so simple um, kind of, I felt really informed that character's behavior. And especially because he's such an adept liar too. Like he's always on his feet, at least two steps ahead. You know, we see him go to the mailbox and, and pull the mail to sort of familiarize himself with, you know, the life of this man that he's about to gate crash. And then, you know, that pays off in its own wonderful, beautiful way in the end. But that's, see, I love that because that's sort of the burden of a, a storyteller. You have to take all the details that are on the page. And then, well, we don't necessarily have to see every component. You need to put it all together in a sense that puts that performance on the screen. That was so, what was so great about that character is how he felt like he always knew. He, 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 I loved the perfect host. I thought he was so sly. Yeah. You know, he's got it all figured out. He's going to do this and he's, you know, con man. And that such an interesting film. Yeah, that's funny. You guys bring that up. You know, that's where I met Robert. Robert and I met in 2009 at Sundance. He had Jack, the, Jack and the Rabbit and I had Perfect Host. And uh, we both saw each other's films and uh, went and shared a milkshake and found love. As all good couples do. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, Talking about the idea of what these truncated timelines can do to your performance, has it now informed you or kind of laid on your own conscious when trying to decide on future projects saying, oh, what is a three month shoot? Now, 
cut, cut that down to, to a month and then I'll do it, you know? Mm. Yeah, not a luxury. I, I, you know, what I have done is, you know, the last four films I participated in over the last three years is I produced all of them. Um, and, uh, you know, you can't always have that luxury, but even when I was doing Rectify, I was so lucky that um, I, we shot in Griffin, Georgia, which is a little tiny town south of Atlanta. And Ray was so kind in wardrobe and makeup. Everyone was so kind that they would let me take my clothes home um, so that I could put my clothes on and just walk right into the tire store. <laughs> so Ray would send me a text or the first AD would send me a text and be like, we've, we've got it set up, ready to go. Actors are here. We're going to be shooting in 10 minutes because for me, I'm not good sitting in a trailer. I'm kind of like a cage tiger. I sit in that trailer. I mean, I, I, I live on a farm, right? So I work like manual labor every day when I'm not uh, performing. So for me, kind of to just sit with my own thoughts and um, uh, of the character and to kind of have to sit there, it begins to kind of boil over. Um, so I'm always looking to live I've even rented RVs and, and moved around from location to location so I can wake up and be there so I don't have to go through the traditional uh, I even do crazy things like try to take care of my skin when I'm working so I don't have to wear makeup and um, I don't have to go through hair and all that stuff so that I can eliminate the distractions that pull you out of pretending you know uh, if your mom yells it's time for dinner it's really kind of hard to play zombie versus cops you know out in, out in the yard if it's like mom's right there screaming that dinner's ready. You know, you got to wash up. And, and to me, that's kind of what the hair and makeup trailer and, and, and craft service table and all that stuff is for me is just great distractions, unfortunately, um, from the work itself. And I, I'm just not talented enough to overcome those distractions. Parents are the ultimate immersion breakers. Always. And now I'm one of the, and now I'm one of those. <laughs> <laughs> the table has turned good, sir. Indeed, indeed. Or as my son says, the turns have tabled. <laughs> <laughs> now, looking at just all the sorts of amazing opportunities that you've had with your skill set, is there anything out there that you're, is there any frontier out there that you're still looking to, to climb into? Like, or do you want to do a Western? I, I think like from my own standpoint, you'd be fantastic in a Western, but. Well, we feel like the Killing of Two Lovers was kind of like a little modern day Western, right? Um, Ooh. Robert yeah. and I, you know, and the truck is my horse, right? You know, um, it, we, yes, to answer your question, there is many things that I'm excited to explore, um, you know, and, and, I'm, and I am still that 12 year old boy that wants to play an astronaut. I want to play a cowboy. I want to play a doctor. I want to I want to play all these things and, and I'm curious to play them in untraditional ways, um, which is why Lethal was great because I got to play a cop in a very untraditional way. Um, and yes, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what the future holds. I mean, I've, I've been, like I said, right now, I'm more focused on kind of building um, a production company that not only gives me the opportunity and Robert, Robert and I the opportunity to tell the stories that we want to tell, but I want to give other filmmakers an opportunity to tell their stories um, uninhibited, you know, where they have the freedom to explore ideas. And forgive me to continue to go back to Rectify, but 
you know, I would watch Ray McKinnon on set. We would have already shot. Now, mind you, there's table reads, rehearsals, rehearsals in the locations. And then we shot the master of a shot one time. And we've done everything to prepare for the scene. And he looks at me and he goes, is this working? I was like, no. He goes, it's not working on the monitor. It sucks. I was like, it feels awful. And he literally cleared the set and, and had us and had everyone just get their scripts out. Let's just go back to the basics. What are we trying to tell here? Um, so yes, do I want to play, do I want to do more action and do I want to play an attorney one day and have, you know, my uh, fountainhead speech at the end? Absolutely. Um, but more importantly, I'm just, I'm interested in telling uh, truthful stories uh, that give everyone that everyone feels represented in. And, and I feel that's why it was crucial telling the killing of two lovers because we don't see marriage separation in, in those economic strifes as much as I think we should. And I think it's more commonplace than not. You know, you said that you're not a writer, but you have sat behind the director's chair as well. Is that something that you did want to do more of in the future? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, um, you know, unfortunately, I've only directed stuff that I've been in, um, which is which is quite challenging. Um, but yeah, you know, Robert and I are talking about doing something together um, because it, that, it would be nice to have Robert because, you know, my skill set when it comes to directing, I think I'm able to get actors into a place uh, that maybe I speak their language, you know, I'm able to kind of communicate what I think I would want to hear that would help me find the character or kind of put a light on the path. Um, and I feel that, you know, I'm able to kind of give notes that can change the trajectory, but, but with a single line, you know, um, what I'm not, what I'm still learning, which is again, why I'm continuing to work with Robert, because again, he's a professor. So he's so giving with knowledge um, and I'm, I'm trying to learn the technical side of it more. Uh, so yeah, I desperately want to direct uh, again, but I want it to be right. Um, kind of like with acting, I did so much that was crap. Um, a lot of the stuff I directed was crap as well because I was looking at it more of an opportunity. Yeah. Um, and I kind of think, I, I look at my first 20 years in the industry um, as grad school. Um, and I kind of feel that Killing of Two Lovers is my first project. And, and, and I'm excited to kind of build on that uh, moving forward. It's just amazing to get that sort of opportunity with any sort of career because like, especially in, in the early aughts where it's just like everyone's digging into like the it kids. And then eventually it just kind of, the opportunities run out because they, they burn you really fast. And they try to really like push you as the next big thing. Whereas you got to be sort of a journeyman. And like you said, it was sort of a grad school environment where you got to learn. And not everybody gets to learn because this, they sort of get those opportunities where they're being pushed and there's, everyone else is doing the thinking for you in those, te in those sort of scenarios. Yeah, it's a very good point and, and valid. I, I think um, I, I do, I, I, I agree. I, I feel very fortunate. Um, to have kind of had the experience that I've had. Um, but I will say the, the only way it paid off 
was because of the time that I set on set with directors and with uh, with the DP and, and, and watching how everything works so that I could go make my own film because I don't know where I would I don't know where I would have gone after lethal um, if, if I had not learned what I had and made the relationships that I've made along the way. Um, but I, I, I agree it, it, it is a gift and, and actors get it more often than directors. I mean, I think that's what's that's what's terrifying right now is not terrifying, but it's, it's certainly unfortunate um, is watching these directors who have a great short film or a great little indie and then they're thrown into a Marvel movie. I, I mean, that's and then when it fails, they're the failure. And and I, I, I just think that's such an, a misjustice for these young film directors. And right now I'm seeing it with a lot of female directors because they so want to kind of fit the new agenda and make sure that it's all female. And unfortunately, in the studio industry, if you do not succeed, you're next. And, and, I, and I, I feel so, I, you know, Disney has a great program where they're taking young film directors and they're putting them and they're letting them direct shorts that no one may ever see. And they're letting them take the time to grow as an artist. And I think that's so important in this industry. And, and like you said, Mike, they spend more time building you up to knock you down. You lose that learning curve. Well, I also have to feel that that's also a position that you're almost in yourself now, because well, you said, yeah, you had that 20 years to learn. You also just said that you're, you're imagining Killing of Two Lovers is kind of your actual start now, or your new start per se. So there's going to be a chance that somebody's going to come to you with some very large, big budget project and you're saying, well, do I still want to craft myself before I get into that or am I going to have to pass on this amazing opportunity? You know, there's nothing work-wise that I don't think is too big for me to be able to kind of, um, I don't think there would be a role that would be overwhelming. Hmm. Um, but I think what has changed is that each time I would get into a position where I was ready to go make something, the phone would ring and it would be a sack of money, right? Or an opportunity. And I'd go take the sack of money and the opportunity thinking it was gonna lead me to a bigger stage. And what I've learned um, is that those were tests that I continued to fail. Mm. And and I'm I'm grateful now because I have said no to everything uh, these past three years, um, and I've only chosen to go work with Robert and a couple two other filmmakers. Um, so I think what it what these twenty year what this experience has given me and the rewards that came with it, and certainly we do not expect to have this kind of success on the next film. Um, but what it has done is given me the confidence to stick to what you know, and uh, and that's kind of follow your heart. And and I don't think I did that before. I think I was a little scared. I think I was afraid that if I didn't go take the big job, um, that the industry might not call me again. Um, so that reliance that I had on Hollywood, um, that's kind of been pushed to the back. Well, I mean. I think, that's, I think that's the best, best place to leave it on, to be honest with you, because that's just going to show us for next time where we're going to pick back up. I love it, guys. And look, I, I, I can't say this enough. The fact that both of you know uh, A Perfect Host and that you are fans of that film, uh, it, it, I, I truly appreciate that.
that, when I was doing this as an amateur, that was, uh, I started a whole column on home video discoveries and that was one of the first titles that I picked up because <laughs> I think it was randomly on Netflix back in like 2013. And then I'm sitting here watching it and it's like, oh, ooh, I like this one. So thank you for just the, the work that you have done on both of these films and as well as taking the time to discuss it with us here on Overdue Rentals. Yes, thank you so much for your time. Matt, Mike, thank you guys for having me on Overdue and enjoy the rest of your day. You as well. You too. Take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen, Clayne Crawford, the latest guest on Overdue Rentals. Yeah, and thank you for joining us, Clayne. And thank you for listening to that interview and us talk about a little bit more about The Killing of Two Lovers and The Perfect Host. Because really, I, you know, I, I kicked off with it. And I, I shouldn't even have to do that whole part about feeling it's like a, like a backhanded compliment when you're trying to praise somebody. But like, I don't want to make somebody think like, oh, I thought everything else you did was bad, but this is great. But this is really, I mean, Perfect Host is where, I mean, he's done work before that. But Perfect Host is where I became aware of Clayne Crawford. But Killing the Two Lovers is where I now believe he is a force to be reckoned with. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you just look at his resume and he's been in so many, like, he kind of has like a really good character actor's body of work. It was like a walk to remember. Uh, I didn't even, I, I almost totally forgot The Great Raid existed. And then of course he did TV movies like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and well, TV shows like yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer and CSI. And again, he built a resume of credits that he was able to go ahead and hone his chops to the point where, like he said, he's, he's no longer in grad school. He's now doing the stuff that he really wants to do. Yeah, and I think most people who are you know, not going to be following movie news or TV news all the time, they're going to know him because of the Lethal Weapon TV show. And that's kind of where he started to make a name for himself with more of the general public. And I kind of love the idea that, granted, he'll do, he'll do whatever. He'll, he'll be in the big blockbuster if, if, it, if it fits, but like, he's so willing to really give you what is more deserved that he thinks you deserve as far as performances and stories by doing these amazing films that are not going to be the, the thing that's going to be on the big billboard in Times Square, but deserves to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, just hearing him talk about his process, you know, whether it is The Killing of Two Lovers or The Perfect Host, just listening to him recount what goes into his roles is what really wows me about him. It's just he really is one of those no frills sort of actors that sounds like they are very much just dedicated to the craft and you know just it, the fact that we quizzed him about perfect host like over a decade like a little over a decade i think since the film was released like that was yeah, it's, it's 11 been 10 to 11 years because i can't remember the exact date of release and it was 2010 so it we could have been not a full year but almost there yeah but you know that's another thing that i like about this show and the people that we've actually been getting on is the fact that we're approaching with roles that may not be their most memorable or may not be the most recent thing that they've done, but it's something that deserves attention. And you yeah. can just hear that he was still very much gracious about the perfect host getting that sort of acclaim. Well, it sounded, he did make it sound like somebody went up to him and said, these guys want to talk to you about the perfect host. He's like, what? I didn't even remember that existed. <laughs> And I guess we're just going to talk. I'm going to talk to them for an hour because there's this <laughs> new movie, but also they want to talk about this one. Yeah. Uh, the perfect host just 
I remember watching that for the first time and being blown away also by David Hyde Pierce because of everything that I, because, you know, you obviously think Frasier and then you're walking, watching this movie and thinking, you know something? He should be seeing Niles Crane. Well, you know what it is? It's funny too. I was thinking about it. And I was thinking about it more, more so when I was rewatching it the other night is, is that, you know, David Hyde Pierce has done so much stuff. And he's, and he's a big yeah. stage actor as well, gets a lot of credit for, for what he does on stage. And everybody knows how talented he is. But I think people, no matter what, always see him as kind of squirrely and meek and so on and so forth. But this movie not only shows you him being like every side of the thing, it shows you him being a complete and utter, I'm not even, it's not even badass. It's because it's not necessarily badass. It's just that he's, he is a force. Yeah. And, it's something that is like has to be seen because he's switching through it left and right to different parts of it. And it's what, it's what the role needed. And I don't think anybody else but him could have done it. No, absolutely. Just he has to anchor both halves of that ship and he does it so, so freely and so well. And again, uh, as Clayne was telling us, just he had that, energy to work off of and the performance to work off of that if it was anyone else you know he he probably still would have done well yeah. but just it would not have been as well as you know david hype just jumping into this like totally without abandon no matter which half of it you're watching like that one scene in the bathroom towards the end like he's just well hold on hold on when you're saying about that are you talking about with them in the bathroom or are you talking about his last summer holiday black and white film no i'm talking about the two of them okay okay with his female he is he is consorting with his female guest but that is oh, okay okay actually even surprisingly that has somehow flew from my mind for a good five seconds yeah you're right got it yeah but that 16 millimeter film of the last party was also something that i'm just I'm, upon rewatch i'm watching this and it's like wow yeah, I would have never very much into ever see David Pierce doing something like that. But then again, like watching him towards the end and some of the dialogue he has to deliver, like just his whole tirade where it's like, these people think that they can get away with it and they're wrong and they need to fucking pay. Well, you know, it's also too, it's because it's like the most, it feels weird saying it because I don't, I don't like using these terms, but because I'm just, but I'm just using it as a generalization for even what the character is supposed to be at that point. But it's the so, you know, like, quote unquote, macho locker room talk kind of, kind of stuff. And it just fit, even the other characters are supposed to like show that side more than he does are like, damn, damn, man. Just all right, calm down, calm down. <laughs> yeah, just the, the, the social calculus that his character is playing with through this whole film is, you know, that's, that is the major catalyst for everything that happens, but also just watching Clayne Crawford's character slowly unraveling both as a mystery to the audience, but then also the reality of his own situation yeah, is really fun to watch. Because again, as I mentioned in the interview, you, he came from shows like CSI and, you, and he's probably played the perp and you're thinking, oh, okay. So we're just going to see this guy, you know, get his just desserts. And it's like, it's, it's more complicated than that. Well, I think now is the time that you should go finish up listening to this episode and then go check out The Perfect Host and then this weekend check out The Killing of Two Lovers.
Yes, definitely. And don't forget that the host is streaming on Tubi, Amazon Prime, and Pluto. And Pluto. And Pluto. Yes. Yes. Oh, again, lovely free streaming. Seriously, you may, you're probably going to see quite a few movies from those lineups on our show just because they seem to be some of those repositories of overdue rentals. And make sure you now go check off the perfect host off your overdue rental list. Thank you for joining us. I'm Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Mike Reyes. And again, you can find us at twitter.com slash rentals overdue, instagram.com slash overdue rental show, facebook.com slash overdue rentals. And of course, if you have any suggestions, comments, queries, email us at overdurentals at gmail.com. Yes. And until next time, consider this one dropped in the bin. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.